One night, uh, when I'm walking out of, the, of a night service, as I'm walking to my car, I think this was 1978, I hear this voice, almost audible, and the voice says to me, you are going to be a pastor. And I was so focused on uh, preparing to be a pastor that I wasn't keyed in on depression and anxiety. I gave no thought about my upbringing, my past, or you know, what happened in the home. And I was just moving on with my life. But now the past is coming back to me. It started out with like lightheadedness, then it went to dizziness, then it kind of morphed into disorientation. I was experiencing an emotional flashback. PTSD. I also learned that this isn't just the devil trying to mess with me. He, he already attempted to do that through broken people earlier in my life. This is being allowed by the Lord so that these wounds can be healed. Well, Tim, welcome to Delafay Testimonies. It's an honor to have you here today. For the people who may not know who you are, who maybe have not seen you, can you just tell us your name and a little bit about yourself? Um, my name is Tim McGraw, and uh, I've served as a pastor for the last 40 years and uh, just recently retired. And uh, I uh, would love people to know that there is, uh, that Jesus does the deepest healing for whatever, whatever kind of wound that we carry from, uh, from our ancient past to our present. And I just want you to know that. Tim, could you tell us about your life before Jesus, starting with your childhood? Did you know about Jesus? Did you grow up in a Christian home? No, I didn't. I did not grow up in a Christian home. In fact, uh, my mom's background was Christian science, which is, you know, the mind over matter. And so we didn't grow up in any faith environment, did not go to church. There were uh, six kids in our family. When my mom uh, met and married my dad, they were students at the University of California. There were six kids born in probably nine-year span. Wow. A lot of uh, pressure on a young family. Uh, their marriage did not work out. My dad eventually moved back to West Virginia. Uh, we made a trip back there as a family to try and salvage the marriage. Uh, my mom did. Uh, it did not work. And in the process of that, uh, my mom moved, uh, had to go back to California where we were from, but she wasn't able to take three of the kids. Hmm. And I was one of the three that uh, she wasn't able to bring back. What was that? I think she had to get the two oldest ones in school, and she had a baby. Hmm. And the other three could be, were, you know, sort of farmed out to relatives. But I'm only, I'm not even four yet. And that combined with probably some of the stress going on in the home uh, was a major separation issue for me you know, at, at four years old. So fast forward, we come out to California, get reestablished as a family, and my mom meets and marries my stepdad. He has a major problem with alcohol, and so he comes in, and he also has a problem that I won't, I won't know this until much later in my life, but he has a problem with uh, being a, a sexual predator. I don't know any of that. We're just growing up in a home. I do remember lots of disappointment in the home, uh, weekends that were spoiled because you couldn't have friends over because you didn't want them to see the condition of your stepdad. 
it was not an easy environment and there was no Jesus, there was no Bible and there was no church uh, to be a part of. So obviously a lot of things happened uh, during that time frame. By the time I'm in seventh grade, I'm starting to get, uh, what do you call it, panic attacks. I'm going to a different location, you know, uh, middle school's in one location, then you go off to another location. So when I'm in seventh grade, I'm, it's a new environment, and I'm starting to, you know, to get panic att attacks, and also to feel the onset of, yeah, what I would describe as, you know, depression. I wouldn't have termed it clinical depression, but depression. Hmm. To the point where, you know, I'm talking to my mom, and we're figuring out if we need to involve a doctor or something like that. By the time ninth grade rolls around, I want to play football, um, go in for a physical, have high blood pressure, so high that they won't clear me to play football. So this anxiety issue, along with the depression, carries through through the high school years. Hmm. During high school, uh, I think I, it was my ninth grade year, the doctor gave me a prescription for Valium. He didn't know that I would repeat that prescription or keep accessing it all the way through the high school years. And what is that for, for anybody who doesn't know? Uh, Valium is the, it was a drug for, uh, for anxiety. Mm -hmm. It was a calming drug. Because I had those panic attacks and I'd be in public settings, I remember playing basketball on the basketball team and I'd put one in my sock. I needed to have, to know what to do if I had a panic attack. Mm. So this was, this was carrying on all through the high school years, the, those two things. And as I got older, uh, it actually became harder, became even uh, more, in, more intense. And I didn't have any answer. Like I, like I said, we were not a church family. Uh, we weren't getting promises out of the Bible. We weren't going to church. My mom was a Christian science. Uh, she wasn't an attender of a church, but she, she took that uh, mindset from her history. And so we heard things like, you don't have to go to church to believe in God. It put something in all of us kids that, you know, church isn't important. And God really isn't that important either, except don't use his name in vain, you know. <laughs> it's, kind of, it's kind of funny. My mom was more conscious of being socially, having social etiquette, you know, not having kids that cursed and stuff like that. And I don't fault her. I mean, that's probably a good thing. Yeah. But nobody in the family uh, knows what I'm really experiencing. Uh, and I do feel a little bit like the odd one out among the kids. He's the depressed one. So it, it kind of carried a little bit of a stigma. When I graduated from high school, a lot of, you know, my, co my friends at school, they're going off to college or whatever. And I decided to go to the local junior college. And while I'm there, I just am not motivated. I'm not getting good grades. Uh, I, I'm involved with people that are, it, it wasn't like it was horrendous, but it was party and you know pot and all that kind of stuff. I really didn't know w what I was doing, mm -hmm. where I was going. I had a childhood friend and one, one, uh, he went off to college in San Diego, and when he came up one summer, we met and we talked, and he told me, you know, if you're ever in trouble, I didn't really know what he meant by in trouble, but if you're ever in a bad place, he said, look up my sister. I just made a note. I, I think that came back to me because 
I was in this place of anxiety and depression and didn't really know how to get out of it. One day while I was going to work, I had been feeling like the, um, what's the word, the veil between what I now know as sp the spiritual world and the natural world was getting real thin. So at this time, I'm almost 21, I can almost hear voices, see, you know, ugly images that were really assaulting me. I didn't know how to combat that either. One day when I was driving to work, I just turned around and, uh, and didn't go to work. And I had a boss who was a drill sergeant in the Army, and he, I worked at a manufacturing plant for uh, Wonder Bread Bakery, and he was just a stickler for work, being on time and doing everything. And I just thought, when I turned around and decided not to go to work that day, I thought, I'm getting fired. And while I was driving home, I'm being bombarded at that time with suicidal thoughts. And then I remembered what my childhood friend said. If you're ever in trouble, go see my sister. So I drive out to her house, and I, it's a Saturday night, and I say, I just messed up with my boss. I, I don't know what to do. This was a, a Saturday morning. And she said, well, there's a meeting tonight. Why don't I take you to it? And I said, well, what do I do about my boss? I, I didn't go to work today. He goes, she goes, why don't we just drive in and talk to him? So we drove out from where I lived in the Bay Area into Oakland. And she said, let's just, uh, let's just trust the Lord. So we go in there and talk to the boss. And to my amazement, my boss is incredibly kind to me, you know, and gracious to me. Not a problem. You know, kids have problems. I'll help you. I didn't lose my job. I went with her that night. And the first time in my life, I heard uh, the preaching of the Bible. Never heard that before. So for the meeting was a church gathering. What was the meeting? The meeting was, uh, it was put on by the Billy Graham Association. And the speaker was a guy named John Wesley White. And he was one of Billy Graham's associates. And he was preaching an outdoor, at an outdoor amphitheater in Concord, California. This, friend, uh, her, the sister took me to that meeting and I heard the, heard the message, don't remember what it was. She said at the very end, there was a call to respond to Jesus Christ. And she turned to me in, uh, sitting out there and she said, would you like me to go with you? And so I said, I, I looked at her and, and obviously I, I needed her to and I nodded to her, yes. And we went forward. And all I remember from that night is it was a dark, windy night. It was sort of an outward picture of what I was feeling inside. But after I heard the message and I heard about Jesus and I responded to Jesus, all I know is when I left that place and when I went to the restaurant to talk with some friends afterwards, uh, it was like the weight of the world had been lifted off me. It was wow. like 600 pounds had been lifted off me. I just felt this incredible otherworldly peace. I had no other, no other way to describe it. I was in the restaurant uh, just marveling at what had just happened. And the incredible thing was that peace and that presence just began to sustain me. I began to experience more of the Lord showing up in amazing ways. He would let me see a, a cross 
I'd be waiting at a train station, BART station in the Bay Area, and I'd see the cross somewhere, or I'd come home at night, and I'd see the shadow of the cross on my door. It was just the Lord winking at me. It was the Lord saying, I'm with you. Hmm. After that, because my mom had planted this thought that you don't need to go to church, you know, to believe in God, I was slow to get to, into church. Commonly, new Christians are taught, read your Bible, go to church. I was taught, I must have been taught that too, but there was some kind of stronghold or barrier keeping me out of church. It took me about three months. The way that happened is I met this guy at the junior college who was a classmate from high school. Uh, I remembered him at high school and I remember what, he was, what kind of guy he was. But when I saw him later at the junior college, three years later, he, his face was so lit up with uh, joy that I thought, who is this guy? What happened to this guy? I need to know what happened to this guy. One night I was driving around in the car and I was just kind of feeling a little bit lost. Even though I'd had this powerful encounter, I, I hadn't made my way into the church. And I remembered where he lived and I went over, on his, over to his house and I banged on his front door and he, he opened up and <laughs> it was kind of funny because there's a formal dinner setting going on with his mom and his sister and fine china. I just didn't care. I just I needed answers. So I said, tell me about Jesus. Tell me about the Trinity. Tell me about the Bible. And he looked at me and laughed. He said, well, why don't you just go with me to church? So I went with him to a Wednesday evening uh, service, small group of people. And from then on, I became planted in the local congregation. And that's where I began to uh, meet Jesus, get into the scripture. I, I began to pray with and work kind of closely with the, the pastor. One night, uh, when I'm walking out of, the, of a night service, as I'm walking to my car, I think this was 1978, I hear this voice, almost audible, and the voice says to me, you are going to be a pastor. And I had no idea what a pastor was, although I'd been hanging out with, with one for the last two years. Wow and praying with him in the morning and things like that. I knew that word was so strong that when I look back, I know the, the Lord knew I needed that because later when I'm in college, somebody asked me, a guy that was, is a Bible college, he was going to a, a, a community college for business. I was talking to him about, well, why are you doing that? He goes, don't you have a plan B? And I said, no. I, I've heard a call and that's, that's it. So for me, that call was so strong, you're gonna be a pastor that I never doubted at any point after that, that that's what, that's what my, my uh, calling, that's what my assignment was. So Tim, you mentioned earlier that uh, you struggled with depression and anxiety. Now you're encountering Jesus and you're deciding to follow him. And, so how did he begin to deal with that, with that depression and with that anxiety in your life at that time? I began to encounter Jesus in the fellowship of the church, in relationships with the pastor, with the associate pastor, and they began, they sort of took me under their wing. I would hang out with the, uh, the associate who was the youth pastor and his family, and I began to learn things about how they did family, and it just seemed so much different, you know, than the way I did family growing up. 
not a criticism about our home, it's just the level of brokenness in our home made a lot of things you know, harder to access. And I, I began to see health over here. And as time went on, I'm with, I'm with the people of God. I'm, I'm, I'm definitely, you know, I love the scripture and I'm in the promises. And Jesus is meeting me. Um, I'm not the volume I mentioned, that's gone. I'm not getting panic attacks. And I'm being affirmed by the body of Christ and by the people that know me. And they see calling in me. And I mentioned that word that the Lord spoke to me, that you're going to be a pastor. And so I'm getting a sense that my life has direction. It has purpose. There's a meaning and not just all this heartache and difficulty. So my pastor, uh, went, he, uh, one day we went to breakfast and I was telling him about, I'm thinking about going to San Diego State. And he said, he kind of paused and hesitated. And I learned, well, I learned from him to know he, he's trying to tell me something. So he had mentioned Bible college. And that was the first time I'd ever, that thought ever crossed my mind. I thought about it more, and um, in the fall of that year, I think I'd been a Christian less than three years, and I went off to Bible college. I had this idea of being uh, preparing for, you know, to be a pastor, and so I got exposed to all kinds of teaching and classes on Bible and theology and all this stuff, and I was, I was just so hungry and just eating this up, and I was so focused on, uh, you know, preparing to be a pastor, that I wasn't, uh, I wasn't keyed in on uh, depression and anxiety. I will say this though, the second year I'm in uh, college, and by the way, I'm, I'm meeting a young lady who, who, who is now my wife, and so there are things being stirred up in me that I'd never experienced before. You know, part of my earlier journey in high school and depression and anxiety is I didn't go to a junior prom, I didn't go to a senior prom, I didn't go to an eighth grade graduation. During those times I'm alone and in some cases walking around by myself. It's part of that, you know, that loneliness abandonment issue earlier. When I meet my wife-to-be later, you know, all this romance and, you know, stuff gets awakened in me and it's, it's almost overwhelming. I don't even know hardly how to manage it. So the, so the depression and the anxiety, you know, that, that kind of greatly diminished in those first few years as I'm following the Lord. But in the middle year of Bible college, my fiance, or she was a girlfriend at that time, she went back to Alaska and I'm... You know, I'm on the campus basically alone, and I think from that point on, and for the remainder of that year, I'm very, very depressed. It is revisiting me, and I'm a believer. I love Jesus, but I'm I'm dealing with you know a, a pretty pretty deep level of depression. Um, was that surprising to you? Like, what was your reaction as as this is happening? You're going for Bible school. You're a Christian. But you're feeling these these emotions again, these feelings again, depression. What, what was your reaction to that? Um, I was uh, surprised is a good word. I, I was surprised, and I I, I didn't know what, where to put this because the my first flush of experience with Jesus is so powerful and so peace peace giving to me 
that I think it's going to be this way all the time. And when uh, two years into the journey, I'm sinking into this depression of all places at the Bible College, I don't know where to put that. And I don't ha I'm not talking to anybody about it either. It's sort of like, hey, what happened? I thought this was ended. I didn't know, I didn't know about unprocessed things. I had no idea, no clue at that time. By the third year of Bible college, uh, I'm getting ready to, you know, marry my wife and move to Alaska where we started, where we lived, started our family, and began pastoral, uh, pastoral work. So the anxiety and the depression, though, some of those pieces were diminished because my focus is now ministry and I've got tons to do and tons to learn and so on we go. In, you know, in the process, there are a few things that happen along the way, like um, at night, there were some nights where I would forcibly, just involuntarily, um, kick my wife in the middle of the night. I don't know what that's about. She wakes up with a bruise. I don't know what the origin of that is, but things like that happen periodically. I remember having a dream where I see this image of this little blonde kid and the, the, the face of the kid. He, you see, I see these sores and he's, he looks unkept and his hair is disheveled and he just looks not taken care of. It was one of those dreams that are painful and they stay with you for a, day, a couple of days. I thought at that time it was a picture of my son because he's the blonde kid. And because I just had an experience where, with him where I inadvertently wasn't keeping track of him while I was talking to somebody. And he uh, ended up calling his mom because he didn't know where I was. So when I had that dream, I thought it was my son. But as, I, as time went on, and again, these are just little glimpses of things that happened. I realized, I don't think that's a picture of my son. I think it's a picture of me. But again, I don't have a lot of the history. I, I don't have a lot of the connecting of dots about that little boy and why he might have looked and, you know, looked like that. So on, on I go and, and basically I get involved in uh, uh, the busyness of pastoral ministry. Uh, this is back in the day, you guys will love this, where I led worship and preached three times a week. I preached Sunday morning, I preached Sunday night, I preached Wednesday night. I led worship in all those services, and I was doing a lot of other stuff. I'm very busy in the work of ministry. I'm not real aware, though, of what is happening to me. I learn later uh, self-care, that kind of stuff, mm -hmm. no, no knowledge of that. Back then, it was burnout for, you know, burn, better to burn out than rust out. Wow. <laughs> so, I mean, I'm, I'm part of a church culture as well, you know, a church mindset. So um, that's, that's, I continue that pace in ministry up until uh, uh, about 19, uh, I, I'm maybe uh, 15 years in. There's some conflict, you know, in the church, conflict in the family. I begin to lose my sleep cycle. 
and I, I'm not able to sleep and very weird uh, sensations and we, when you don't sleep well, you get off and that happened. And so I went and visited, visited a friend of mine, pastor in uh, Anchorage, and he told me, you need to go see a doctor. And so I went, uh, had a visit with the doctor and he prescribed uh, antidepressants. And so for the next, you know, I would say 15 to 20 years, I'm taking antidepressants. And at that time, uh, it's different now, but at that time, uh, the churches didn't like the idea of pastors either going to counseling, taking any kind of medication. There was such a horrific stigma uh, tied to it. You can take your car in for help, you just can't take you in for help. Thankfully, a lot of that has changed now, but that was back uh, in a different time, and so I had to keep a lot of this uh, buried and not talk to anybody, can't, can't access resources. Wow. We eventually moved from, uh, we, we were 17 years in the church in Alaska. It came time, obviously, where for different reasons we felt like our time was up. We moved to California, to Madeira, and I began to pastor there. Some of the issues that I've just described are not, are not fully resolved. I'm still taking antidepressant medication. I realized, I don't know if you, everybody, you remember, but when the insurance thing crashed, the medication I was taking for antidepressants cost, I think at the time, like 10 bucks. When the insurance thing happened, it went up to 200 bucks a bottle. So I talked with my wife and I said, you know what, I feel numb. I don't feel any kind of emotion or feeling at all. Maybe it's time, you know, to get off this, these antidepressants. So I found a company called Point of Return and they told me how you could get off this. Interesting, my doctor was not in favor of it. Didn't think you could get off it. I found out, yes, you can. They know how to titrate the medicine down so that you're, you know, you're slowly getting off. Long story short, it took me four months with uh, health supplements to get that, to get the depression or to get the medication out of my body. Mm. I will say this too, just no shame or guilt for anybody taking medication. I'm just saying for me, I was emotionally disconnected. And because of the cost of the pills, I thought maybe this is time to, you know, to try and get off this. The organization I work with, they said, I just wanna let you know that when you get off this, you're probably gonna get in touch with some of your true feelings. I said, okay. <laughs> I had no idea what that meant. I, when, I, when I got off the medication, um, my wife's, her dad died. We went to Alaska to do the funeral. And when I came back to California, I remember vividly a trip to uh, the outlet stores over in Gilroy and when we decided uh, we we're tired. It was late in the afternoon. We get something to eat. Stopped at the In-N-Out Burger store and ordered our meal. And my wife went outside to get a table. And as I sat there waiting in the crowd, I began to feel some strange, very strange feelings. Uh, it started out with like lightheadedness. Then it went to dizziness. Then it kind of morphed into disorientation that I couldn't remember where my wife was. And as I sat there, I felt smaller and smaller and smaller, fragile, uh, lost, overwhelmed. 
I was experiencing uh, an emotional flashback, PTSD, and I had no idea what that was about or where it was coming from. I gave no thought about my upbringing, my past, or you know what happened in the home, and I was just moving on with my life. But now the past is coming back to me, and it's telling me things I that lay bit, uh, lay hidden like layers of sediment, like an archaeological site, and I don't know what's down there. This was 2015, and from the months after that, I started experiencing these flashbacks. I'd go out in the parking lot, couldn't find my car. I, I remember being in New York City, getting on the subway. We were on a, a trip, and uh, just feeling so overwhelmed with the crowd, I wanted to crawl up, you know, crawl up into a ball and just disappear. I had no idea what was going on with that. These flashbacks first began um, when I got when I began to get off the medication, uh, get off the uh, antidepressants. They were uh, initially uh, they were overwhelming to me. I found a, a book that had do these ten things, <laughs> and then I need I needed to know how to navigate this. It was so bewildering, and I remember I worked with a a, a, a trainer um, who who lives close to me, one on one. And when I came into the building one day, I looked in the car, his car seat, and I saw this book called um, something like uh, CPTSD, a guide to you know from survival to thriving. And I'd never heard of CPTSD. I'd heard of PTSD, but not with a hyphen C. And I found out that that C stands for complex PTSD. And that began to, as I read through the book, it gave me the clearest description of what my childhood was like. And basically complex trauma or complex PTSD is, it's complex. It's multi-layered, it's repetitive, it's things that accumulate. In other words, it's a description of kids that grow up in dangerous homes. Hmm. And I realized that a lot of the, when I look back, I see all kinds of adverse, as they call it today, adverse childhood experiences. Everything from neglect to abandonment to alcoholism to rage to verbal abuse to sexual abuse to poverty, all of that. That began to, began to sort of break me out of deni some of the denial that I'd been in for all these years. There's so many parts and pieces to this, but one night early on, the, I felt like the Lord woke me up and he, 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 he gave me a picture of a book that was in my library. This book was given to me while I, went, uh, while I was in Alaska. I'd had it for 30 years and I'd never read it. And I, I knew exactly what it looked like, the color of it. I went to my library, I found it, I looked at it. I just couldn't put it down. I was reading through almost the whole book that night. There was a chapter in there called Breaking Vows of Silence, or Vows of Silence. And as I read through that, it just began to dawn on me that I think when I'm young, when I'm little, and I've had these events happen to me, I'm saying to myself, I'm just going to pretend that this never happened. All these survival strategies that you a kid has to use to survive, I develop all that kind of stuff, but I'm not aware of it. 
And now all of a sudden with this eruption of PTSD coming back into my life, I'm now beginning to come into an awareness more and more of what had actually happened. And I'm breaking through the denial and saying, this actually happened to me. You know, I was abused. I had never said that in 58 years of living. The case is becoming convincing to me <laughs> from sources, from my body, from things I'm reading, and the Lord is just showing me. I felt like Joseph. I was so excited about following Jesus and pastoring, and I just wanted to move on. I didn't even, what, what little I knew or what I did know of my history, family upbringing, I wasn't interested in revisiting. Now, in these later years, this stuff is starting to come back. Mm. And it's coming back with intensity, with force. It's like a hurricane. And it, it, will, not be, <laughs> it will not be suppressed anymore. Yeah. And so, how, how old were you when, when this started to happen? Probably 59. Wow. I know for a lot of people, from what I've read, this, this tends to come back maybe a little earlier. Not in my case. I look at that now as the Lord knows when it's good for you to come to, you know, to help to begin to process your stuff. Hmm. He knows. And so rather than fight that or regret that, why did it take so long? I looked at it as I, I commit that into your wise and sovereign hand. You know. Yeah. And now's my time, you know, to really begin to come to terms with this. Wow. Not easy to do while you're pastoring. And there were a particular piece of this that was probably the hardest to navigate. The most difficult day of the week for me was Saturday night. And part of that, you know, is, you know, anticipating speaking the next day and whatever pressure or anxiety that might bring. But I also learned that, uh, and this didn't, this is more in, in the last, I would say in the last year and a half, I've learned that when I was um, nine, I think nine years old, uh, I was home for Christmas vacation and I was sick. I had the flu and I was uh, staying out in the living room uh, because I normally slept in, the, in a room with four brothers <laughs> on two bunk beds. <laughs> and, but I was sick, so I'm staying out in the living room. It's dark and I'm asleep and I've got the flu and that night, um, my stepfather, who I found out later through my sister, that he had molested her on multiple occasions in two different homes. When I found that out and realized that it all happened at night, and I realized that on that night, on that night when I was sick and unable to even remember or even hardly even coherent, when he assaulted me. He, it was a violent kind of assault. Not a guy grooming me for something, just a man in rage and in brokenness, you know, just venting himself on me. That was so overwhelming to an, a nine-year-old that the memory of that was split off. Hmm. The whole experience had been buried for all those years, all those decades, until it comes out, you know, in my 59th year. Wow. Saturday night, I believe, is when that happened. For a number of years, especially in the last five years of pastoring, I had difficulty with getting to sleep on Saturday night and sometimes not sleeping at all and going into the pulpit with no sleep. 
this is not easy to navigate alone, and it's not easy to navigate while you're pastoring to try and figure this out. I realized that I had developed my mind, my, the intellectual part of my life was racing ahead, but my emotional life was so, so undeveloped. I was like cut off. That affects preaching because you can say a lot of right, right things, but you're not saying it out of congruence. You know, you're not saying it out of integration. People recognize the difference where you're not emoting in a way that they relate to. And that, I think, was a, what was happening to me because this part of me had had these kinds of injuries, you know, that were not processed. In the last five years, I'm becoming aware of a lot of this stuff. Hmm. What the Lord did, you know, I go back to when he met me at 21. He knows all this history. He knows everything that's happened. But as my life unfolds and these events and the denial is broken through, First of all, I get, I, I'm beginning to get educated. I'm starting to read and find out. Secondly, I, I joined a men's group about five years ago. And I did that because I realized I can't get where I want to go by myself. Part of the issue for me is that the, uh, my stepfather, out of his own brokenness, when we were young, he brought pornography into the home. And so you can only imagine a kid growing up in chaos who's looking for some way to medicate or manage and gets exposed to that. What happens is it kind of plants a root in me. And even though I'm able to function and pastor, I'm not incapacitated by it, that what's driving that need to, to medicate, I never knew what was underneath that until the last five years when all this PTSD childhood, you know, trauma, all this stuff started to erupt. You know, <laughs> it makes me think of the old uh, washing machine commercial, Sam the Maytag Man. Do you remember that? He said, pay me now or pay me later. When it comes to pain, you know, and wounds, you got to process them. I learned that this stuff is coming up for a reason, but I also learned that this isn't just the devil trying to mess with me. He, he already attempted to do that through broken people earlier in my life. This is being allowed by the Lord so that these wounds can be healed. Hmm. It's the wisdom of God, you know, to heal. Yeah. And it doesn't matter how deep, you know, or how long or how old. So getting, in, getting with a group of guys and beginning to talk about these things, finding a good uh, counselor to begin to talk more about, especially the, the childhood uh, part of this, the childhood trauma. Very important, learning how to calm myself, um, for lack of a better way of saying it, to learn how to quiet myself. You could call it solitude. Learning to sit with myself and, and learn how to breathe. You know, that, that became super, I mean, just a necessity for functioning. But I also realized the Lord was doing stuff in that quietness. He was building self-control. He was helping me manage. And then, I, you know, I love the Bible. I've been a student of the Bible, you know, from the beginning. I love to exegete the scriptures and preach the Bible like most pastors love to do. But I found it was important for me to sit with the Lord 
and let him take me to certain to passages and promises. And I just began to not only read these passages, but I began to hear the Lord speaking to me through these passages. And I discovered that his tone, his tone is much different than the abusive tone I grew up hearing. That the Lord has a different tone than brokenness and damage. And as I would hear that, and I would hear the Lord say things like, you know, I delight in you. You know, I'm thrilled about you. I love what we get to do together. When I heard that kind of stuff, I found my emotions starting to come alive, uh, started to get comforted and soothed and to the point where I literally felt like I'm being refathered by the Father. Wow. Tim, where are you in your, in your process now with God? Um, you are, how old are you now? 67. 67. This happened when you were 59, right? Yep. Um, so where are you in, in that process with God now? Well, I feel like I'm rediscovering what wholeness means. I would have agreed to the idea earlier. I would have loved the idea of holiness, but I now know that wholeness is relational. It's, a bit, it's about hearing the kindness and the, the voice of the Father it's also about learning to be vulnerable with people that are not perfect, but they're safe enough. And I've learned that developing those kinds of relationships, my intellectual brain is getting better coordinated with my intuitive or imaginative brain. Things that were separated are becoming more integrated. Uh, perfectly, no. Uh, ups and downs, yes. Occasional n uh, nights of s less sleep, yes. Codependent patterns here and there, yes. But I would say in all of that, I just see the Lord. Uh, I, I, you know, to, I'll just be. I love what the Lord is doing now. I think I wish I didn't have to go through all that, but then I realize, no, I think that all of that is shaping me into the person that the Lord, you know, always knew I would become. I feel like I'm in a place where I want to, um, you know, I guess when you get healthy, the natural outcome is you want to help people. I think we're designed to do that by God's grace. He's doing it in me. I, I want to represent Him, and I owe this to the world. I'll, I just know this, the Lord heals the brokenhearted. He knows the depth and the intensity of our damage, and he stays, he hangs in there with us. Hmm. And he knows how to bring people around us until we become like Isaiah 61, that we end up becoming what? Oaks of righteousness and repairs of, of broken walls, restorers of cities. I love what the Lord is doing now, and I love, somebody was telling me that, you know, when the man, when the Lord begins to put the man back together, somehow in the invisible realm, in the spiritual realm, he begins to set in order everything that's around the man, his family, his kids, his grandkids. And I love seeing him do that. I'm, I look for it. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Tim, what happened with the PTSD? As you mentioned, that's kind of one of the giveaways that uh, there was something wrong. Yeah. Um, and now as you begin to come into this deeper 
um, phase of healing, what did the Lord do with that in, in, in showing you all of these things? That is a, a work that's in process. I know that um, He's helping me recover and He's healing because, generally speaking, I'm sleeping better. I don't get triggered as easily or as often. I have more of a sense of being, uh, I, I like to use the word, settled by the Father. And by that I mean simple things like not being, uh, having anxiety amped up over anything as wide-ranging as financial issues to conversations, you know, honest conversations that need to happen to, you know, my general outlook. And when I look back over even a year ago or two years ago or three years ago, I would not have been able to manage uh, what I'm managing now hmm. without this level of triggers. That tells me that though it's not perfect, that the healing is on, you know, and he's doing it. Come on. Yeah. Tim, who is Jesus to you? <laughs> How much time do we have? <laughs> That's going to make me weep. Um, Jesus reveals the Father. I know the Father because of Jesus. You know, Jesus is the one who I get to hang out with. You know, it, it's so, uh, words, words are, are not really adequate here. So Jesus is, is not just Savior, Lord, but his friend, He's healer, He's provider, He's defender. He is, is, the, is, is the one who delights in me. Uh, years ago, a few years ago, I saw a picture of the face of Jesus painted by someone who I think died and had an assignment or they saw something and when they came back to life, their assignment was to paint him. And uh, you can get, this picture is actually fairly common. I saw it on an easel a couple of years ago and it's the face of Jesus, especially the eyes. And I couldn't get with that, with, uh, within 10 feet of that picture without, I had a, an emotional, visceral response. It just uh, made me tear up. And I was thinking what, what was going on. Because when I looked in the eyes of Jesus, you asked me, what does he mean? I saw somebody that could see everything in me, everything, the good, the bad, the ugly. And yet, at the same time, the eyes told me that you are safe and loved forever. Mm. And I just, you know, what, what can you do but melt? Yep. Only Jesus can put us back together again. Amen. Tim, what can you say to, to people who are shelving their trauma? You know, things that they've been through, putting it in the back burn, just pushing forward, right? College, pastoring career, whatever it may be, just moving forward, not paying attention or not seeking the help. What is a word of encouragement that you can give to those people who are watching right now? No shame and no blame, but the Lord loves you too much to um, leave us in a life that is less of what He intended for us. And pain, you know, like C.S. Lewis said, is the megaphone that gets our attention. I would encourage people, I'd encourage anyone, for the sake of your, your, your future, your destiny, your marriage, your kids, 
it is always wisdom to invite the Lord into the, the hardest, most difficult places. None of us can get there alone. I would say it is unwise to put, push off into the future things that, that the, the Lord really intends to put together to help heal you of now. He is and remains, you know, our healer. And that means not just your body and bones and blood, but emotion and damage and memory and all of that. You know, he's the master of it all. So I would encourage people, be courageous. It takes courage to heal. And the easy way out is to avoid it, but that has a compounding effect that is not worth it. It's not worth it for you or your family in the end. Hmm. So I would encourage you, you know, have courage and open up your life to the one who knows you the best, but open it up to some imperfect people as well, especially if they name the name of Jesus. They have his heart and they will be a part of your process as well. We're not meant to do this alone. Hmm. Tim, for people who are watching on the other side of the screen and are connecting with different parts of your life, could you just pray for them as they're watching you right now? Sure. Yeah. Lord, I just, I just so, I thank you for, for anyone listening, all those that are listening that have, that are confused, they have questions, they hurt, they've been diagnosed, they've had surgeries, they've done many different things to try and get well. Others that are bearing things and they know it, they're medicating, they're running, they're avoiding. Lord, I've done all those things. I ask for them specifically right now that, that somehow you would crack a little door open in their life, in their heart, and let them know they are so valued by you. They are made in your image. It doesn't matter what they've done or what was done to them. You pursue us all the days of our life. You do it, Lord, because we're valuable to you. And I ask, Lord, that, that you would just plant that in the heart of people to let them know that there's hope, that they're loved, and that there's solutions to their pain, and it's all found in Jesus. And so, Lord, make yourself known in different ways, special ways, like you have for me, but make yourself known to these that are so, that are, whose ears and hearts are open and they're seeking you. Make, make yourself known to them, Lord, and begin to move them on a journey of, of healing. I ask you to do this, Lord. I thank you. Thank you for everyone listening. And Lord, let the love of God come upon them. I ask this in the mighty, credible, awesome name of Jesus. Amen.